Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Royal Automobile Club talk show in association with Motorsport. I'm Ed Foster, and I'm the online editor of Motorsport Magazine, and I'm joined by Ben Cousins, the former motoring secretary of the Royal Automobile Club, and Alan Hyde behind the camera doing the, all the audio wizardry that you can hear at the moment. Um, this is our third talk show, and if you missed the first two, then do please have a look on SoundCloud and YouTube. Search under Royal Automobile Club and have a listen. There's over an hour with Ross Braun and Nick Fry talking about the demise of Honda, at the end of 2008, and of course, the birth of Braun GP. There's also a 40-minute interview with the 23-time Isle of Man TT winner, John McGuinness. Now, today, we have a real treat for you. We have Sir Sterling Moss here in Pall Mall. A very warm welcome, Sir Sterling. Um, it seems stupid to start with some facts about you because they are so well known, but I was looking on the internet yesterday and sort of coming up with some headline figures. And of the 527 races you entered in your sort of first career, you finished 375 of them, and you won 212 of them, <laughs> which is a win rate of 40.2%. Um, to put that into perspective, Michael Schumacher only has a 29.6% win rate. Oh, I'm glad <laughs> to hear that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, it is, a, it is a truly astonishing number, especially when you think about the reliability. Um, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, it's uh, absolutely amazing. But in light of that number of races, we're going to focus on just two today, um, the Monaco Grand Prix and the Mille Miglia, of course. Monaco, what, which year? 61? All, all, all years. Oh, all, yeah, oh, well, we'll have a look, uh, at, right. look at all of them. Right. And, uh, and the Mille Miglia and um, your memories of those races, because we are in the month of May. So uh, just to kick things off, your first um, win at Monaco was in the 500cc Jap. Yeah. Back in, let's get this right, 1950. Right. What was it like seeing the circuit for the first time? Because it wasn't a circuit you could go and practice on or learn. No, but it, well, one you could quite easily learn because you walk around it, you know. But uh, no, I mean, it, it's one of the great circuits because the public is so close. It's, it's a very private sort of place, you know. And you can, you can actually see the people's faces and all that. And uh, I guess it was really was certainly one of my favorite races of all. And was it, it must have been a circuit that you had to build up the speed with, um, because there was, there was really no, um, there was no margin for error at all, wasn't No, well, I, I was very lucky to go in a 500cc car to start with, because I mean, that's very limited in power, but compared with Formula One cars, you know, and, and it suited really well. I, mean, I can remember going there and thinking, you know, the road's quite wide, and the, the car did handle terribly, really well, and of course one didn't have problems of brake fade that much and so on, and... Uh, just just being in 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 Monte Carlo is, is you know is very special anyway. And what well, just saying that you know when you were there in the 500cc car, the the roads felt nice and wide. The you know yeah. you didn't damage the brakes. Um, how did it feel when you first got into a Grand Prix car on the circuit? I guess the road got a little bit narrower. When you say a Grand Prix car, you mean to, to, to Maserati? Yes, or something the 250. Like yeah. Um, 
Yeah, but I mean, if you know the circuit, I mean, the difficult one of the difficult corners there, of course, is, is the is the tunnel, and that's difficult not because of what it is, but you have to turn in before you can see the exit, and you know that's quite quite a difficult thing to force yourself yourself to do because you're doing there. I think in my day, I probably just over 120, maybe round about that, and and you have to turn it turn in to get round the corner. And and without being able to see where where the devil you're going, so that was quite difficult. It's nice nice to hear people talk about a corner in the tunnel because nowadays there isn't. Well, there is still a corner, but in a modern F1 car, it's it's not yeah, really treated as such. Flat, no, exactly. You, you did in my time, yes. In, mind you, the 500, I'm sure, was flat. Yeah. <laughs> so that would be one good thing. Um, and where what was the secret to being fast at Monaco? Because there's, I mean, there were so many corners. You, I guess, power was slightly taken out of it to a certain extent. But how, where did your speed come from? Well, I mean, it's it's such a it's a proper road circuit to start with, which is which is really nice. And you know, the the nice thing from my point of view is, you know, you go down towards the station, and on the left there were, you know, a couple of, a little uh, bistro. We go there for a drink now, uh, on and off, and and it ha- had so much, you know, so much atmosphere there. And I'd, I've heard stories of you spotting people on the way around and waving to them every lap. Is yeah. it, are those are those true? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, two two good-looking girls going down before the station, actually, on the left, and every every lap I blow them a kiss, you know, and so <laughs> that was, you know, it was that sort of circuit, and that was that was why why it endeared itself to me. Sorry, Ben. I just, I um I should say before before Ben jumps in here, we have. Uh, some books on Sir Sterling, so a couple of your scrapbooks. They're yeah. not the real thing. Uh, we've just been talking about them. You have over just under 60 colour-coded scrapbooks at home, which is oh, incredible. More, more than that. Maps, more than that. So which oh, maps yeah. your entire yeah. career on on two legs and four wheels. Um, so we'll, we'll we'll dip in and out of the, the published ones in a second. Right. But sorry, Ben, I, I interrupted you there. Uh, not at all. I was going to say, I mean, you... Monaco is most famous for being a single-seater race, but of course there was the odd year in '52 when it was run for sports cars. A uh, couple of questions. One is: there's the lovely picture of a very what would be a very expensive crash now of about 20 million quid with a couple of C-types, a DB3S, and a Gordini all in the wall. But what did the drivers make of it when the Monegas said we're running a, a Grand Prix for sports cars? Or did you did you were you up in arms, or did you just say, "Oh, it's no, a car, I mean, we'll race it"? I, I think I think it's such a popular event. I'm sure. I'm sure that every every driver really it was a, you know, it was the the, the the diamond in the crown sort of thing, and I think every driver, um, you know, looked forward to Monaco. Very important event. Now, in that race, you got black flagged eventually, having extricated you fr- yourself from the wreckage of the uh, the crash, and you got up to fifth. D- the Monegasque are slightly notorious for making the rules up um, to their own devices. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a bit frustrated by that? Yeah, very frustrated. I mean, I, I just in, enjoy going going there and, and having the fun of what was a hundred laps in those days. Of course, <laughs> yeah. Oh yes, we were, we were we went into the hotel to Perry after this for for, for a coffee, and uh, there was a dear old lady sitting there. That, that, that side said, uh, "Are you one of those young men making all that noise?" So he said, "Yes, I'm afraid we were." She said, "Well." What were you doing? So I said, well, we were practicing. So we need to. Oh, she said, can't you go and practice somewhere else? <laughs> 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 Which you know, I could feel for, actually. <laughs> there was, I mean, there was a sort of a carnival atmosphere at Monaco 
um, in those days. Well, I mean, it, it was it was just well, it's holiday places. Yeah, you know, was, I mean, one, one thinks of Monte Carlo, and you know, was the casino and the racing and all the other things they have. You know, it was it was a wonderful wonderful place to be. Looking at the the kind of the whole weekend and the the atmosphere and all like that, where does the Monaco Grand Prix sit in your sort of top Grand Prix? I'm, I'm sure. British oh, I, Grand Prix I think. Is, is uh, up there. In the top two or three of my all my races, actually, I would say, yes, certainly, I, because um, uh, I remember what the in '61, I think I'm right in saying that um, uh, the all the race that I remember was what was hundred laps, and I'm following, the, I'm leading with the Ferraris just behind me, and uh, right the way through. Uh, the whole race. I mean, I was within th three f three seconds, or the the rest of the field of, of catching me, and three seconds isn't that, that far. I mean, when you come to these hairpins, I could see the drivers across, and I'd wave at them as though you know was wasn't in any hurry. When I'm as fast as I'm going flat out, but uh, you know, it's, but it's uh, something very special. Uh, Sterling, you've you've talked about the Maserati 250F before, yeah. and obviously the Lotus 18. You won two races at Monaco with that. Which, what are the biggest differences between those? I mean, obviously, the, there's the obvious ones, but in terms of actually driving around a place like Monaco, if you could go and do a lap now, which would you choose? Would you choose the Lotus 18 or the oh, 250F? Oh, certainly, the, yes, certainly, obviously, I'd take that because it was a much more sophisticated car, you know, and uh, certainly easier to drive around there. But but having said that, driving the two, 250F, it was such a, that, that is really probably the nicest front-engine car that's available any time. And uh, so that certainly made it a lot easier. Yeah, and there's something I've always found quite interesting about Monaco is people always talk about Monaco specialists. And there are some drivers, you know, even current drivers, who always go better at Monaco. Uh, Pastor Maldonado, for one, was always yeah. blisteringly quick at Monaco. Yeah. Um, which was surprising given his... his um, his ability to crash, um, but he was very, very quick. <laughs> yes. um, what, which drivers from your era did you always have to keep an eye on at Monaco? Were there particular ones that at other parts of the season you wouldn't have to well, watch? Well, I would say one of the quickest drivers at, uh, around at, at that time, of course, was Tony Brooks. I mean, Tony Brooks was ama amazingly fast. And yet he's a very quiet guy, and and so he didn't get nearly as much publicity as like myself, because I would perhaps date a girl here and there, and he he was a very good boy. <laughs> when you won in 1960 in the Lotus 18, and I think in one of your books it says that the uh, there were two cracked engine mounts, and the front of the engine was held in the car by the the water hose. Um, Con Chapman obviously built that one just to, to last long <laughs> enough. Uh, but then you're back next year with Rob Walker again in Lotus 18 again. And, of course, you nearly got off to a very hot start because um, Al Francis had to weld some tube. Was it the roll bar or something back no, on? There was something. That I know, you know, when you're standing around, you're looking like this. I said, um, Alf, isn't that, isn't that a crack there? <laughs> and, uh, yes, it is, my God. <laughs> so we're now, of course, on the pre-grid. So he goes off to fetch the gear to come back. He didn't have, he didn't have uh, ele electric. Uh, welding, he had, had gas, and of course everybody's looking in like this. And when he lights the glass, gas up, realizing I had about f 50 gallons of fuel on something, everybody pulled back, <laughs> and he, he went. What he did that he mended the car literally there on the pre on on the pre grid. Did it, did it never occur to you to say to Colin, do you think we could make this a little bit stronger? <laughs> Co Colin was not was uh, he, he he was a, a genius at you know design, but he certainly did did. Um, build a, a too lightweight car, really. 
I mean, I had, to, I had a lot of wheels come off, mostly in my career of, of uh, lotuses. Uh, I remember that I happened to win the, win the US Grand Prix in 1961, and they made me a birthday cake because it was on my birthday. And it was just, this was after we were having, you know, drinks and what have you. And they made me this birthday cake with with my lotus on it. And I, I took the, my, the, the knife, cut the wheel off, and said, would you, would you like to give this to Colin Chapman? <laughs> and, uh, which I thought was quite funny. He, did, he didn't have <laughs> much of a sense of humour, actually. <laughs> was, it, was it harder to push in a lotus mentally because you knew it was such a fragile car? Yes, but, is it, but the point is you drive it because you know it's likely to win. I mean, you know, the Lotus uh, was not nearly as nice as, as the Cooper. Cooper, you could throw around, you could, you could really abuse it. It was a, nice, a really enjoyable machine to drive. The Lotus was never enjoyable, other than the fact that you had the potential of success. Now, we've got a picture in the book uh, of the 61, uh, and I'm sure Alan will pan into this later. You took the side panels off. Was this just so you could distribute business cards um, <laughs> going around the hairpins? No, that was or to show the girls your nice legs? Or no, was it's there a purely a race. Remember, the race in those days was about now about three and three, three and three quarter hours long. And I said to Alfred, aerodynamics don't really matter here. It would be really nice to be, you know, just much, much freer. And and so we took it off. I mean, because they weren't doing any, weren't doing anything particularly good for the car. I mean, they weren't aerodynamic or anything like that. Was was Monaco one of the most tiring tracks because of the the constant gear changing, the constant braking and corners? And yes, but it's so it's so exhilarating to drive. It's so rewarding, you know. If you, I mean, you know, if, if if ever you're in a race, the most difficult place to be is leading, because it's much easier to follow somebody than it is to lead. And uh, and there's no doubt that the, the the Cooper was the nicest car to drive, but the Lotus was was that much quicker. Just we we touched on the '61 race, which you know maybe many people consider, I think, quite rightly, to be one of your greatest ever Formula One races. Yeah. Um, how how <laughs> it seems like a very stupid question, but how did you keep finding more and more time and speed throughout that race? Because it. For someone of your talent by 61, you would have thought you, you would be flat out at Monaco, but you kept finding more and more time throughout the race. If, if I'd, if I'd, I think you'll find that if, I'd, if I had done the race, th th three and three quarter hours, whatever, if I'd done that um, uh, pole time, I'd have only been about 20 seconds quicker. And, and uh, which just shows you really how much how much pressure was on. The only way the only way that I could keep the concentration up because being being in the lead is pretty lonely, you know. But you can look in the mirrors and see things. But I mean, um, I, I would go. I, I'd come to say a, a bit of Armco or whatever, and I say, right now I'm going to try and do the perfect lap, which of course you can't do the perfect lap; it doesn't exist. So then when I got to the next uh, thing, I'll try, I'll try it and get a perfect lap here. And that's sort of driving you on all the time, or driving one's you know ability as hard as you can. Um, now, Stanley, we have a lot of reader questions. Um, these aren't all about Monaco and Mini Milia, but some of them are quite quite interesting and fun. Um, so, just quickly, uh, there's Marco f um, here who's asking. You mentioned in the past that the Mercedes 300 SLR was your fa best sports car. Yeah. Um, what was your favourite Grand Prix car? He's wondering. I think probably just for enjoyment, uh, the Cooper. 
I think the, the Cooper was probably uh, as nice and user-friendly uh, as any other. Although one has to agree that the, the 250F was a beautiful car to drive as well. In fact, if the, if the 250F had been built by Ferrari, it would have been even better. Because I think Ferrari uh, technology and so on, I think, was better than Maserati. Maserati, from the point of view of b b building a car with the right balance and all that, it certainly had to be the 250F. So I, I also think it's one of the most beautiful cars ever made. It's yes, a, exactly. Yeah, it looks like a Grand Prix yeah. car. Yeah. Um, there's actually another question here from Marco, that, and he's wondering how much experience do you have of the pre-war Grand Prix cars, um, the supercharged Mercedes, Auto Union? Have you have you ever driven those? No, never, never, never driven one. Um, I would be interested just to try one, but I, it, it it doesn't excite me nearly as much as the cars that I drove. I think the cars of the, the you know of the fifties and so on were really very exciting to drive. They were they were a lot more um, technological, but I always I find it interesting because most drivers are always saying they want more power, more power, um, and I don't think any auto union driver ever said I need more power, no. I need more power. <laughs> no, but then you, you look at something like the Cooper. I mean, it's almost a proportionally perfectly proportioned race car, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. The, the, the front rear weight balance track, everything was right. Whereas you look at, say, the pre-war auto union, and the steering wheel's just under his chin. I mean, the, the driver yeah. was very much not second. But they hadn't, the they, they hadn't learned this straight arm. That was Dr. Farina. He's the one I saw, and he and he looks so smooth. And he's always like that, you know. And, and I thought, well, boy, that's the way, the way it should look. And so I ended after that, following that, I. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market engineered my car so that I had that space in the, in the, in, in the car. It obviously, it worked quite well as well, when you look at, look at your results. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's, yeah, very much. Um, now, moving on to the Mini Melia, um, you first tackled this in uh, Jaguar XK120. Yeah. What were your initial, I mean, obviously you would have known about the race, but what was your original, what, what were your first recollections of well, you've got to, you must realise that at that time we were developing disc brakes, and I was with with Norman Jewis, and we were purely working on the brakes. And we we read this thing. My gosh, there's a race up there in Italy. Why don't we go and enter it and just see how we do? And I suppose we had to call the factory and ask Lostry England. Anyway, they agreed, and went in and. To me, that was a very frightening race. I must say that because because I did I didn't know the circuit, 
and there's no way that you could you could do a thousand miles knowing this so other than if you have which I did, you know, Dennis Jenkinson, Jenks beside me, with a rolling map thing that we call the toilet roll, and I think it was about 27 meters long. And on that, on there, we'd placed our all sorts of notes so that when we're coming up a hill, I'd know Jenks would give me a signal like slow down or flat out, and so on. So he had the whole lot in his in his hands, and he, I mean, amazing really, because. He had to obviously be looking down like this and with the G-loads and so on. Of course, poor chap was, was sick quite often. And then he, luckily the other way. But uh, And then you've got problems, like I said to him, looking, I don't know, it's going to be very difficult. We've got to have a stop to have a slash. So, and so we tried out the best way of doing that and uh, stopped. Uh, but then we, I said, but look, there's no way we can stop on the, on the thing. When we get to Rome, which is where the first control was, um, when we get there, we, we'll do it there. Well, when we come into Rome, they put up 75,000 grandstand seats. So I had to go go across behind something, have a quick pee, and go, it came back and it took me one minute, four seconds, which wasn't bad. <laughs> <laughs> the, so when you first went there, you were just driving blinds then? When, when you oh, first I, went oh absolutely. When we, were, when we first went there and started, we, did, we didn't know anything other than you know that well, we had, we're going down to Rome on, on the, we we knew the route well, obviously because that was fixed, uh, but but no more than that. But it was pretty relaxed. I mean, when you went in uh, 1952 in Norman, he he drove the car out there, didn't he? Yes, well, yeah, well, well, exactly. I mean, you're more famous, obviously, for driving a German taxi to victory in '55, <laughs> but. Which, in fact, there's a picture behind me on the wall, and I'm trying to remember, is that the Raticos or the Futapass? You tell a story about how you had to do it in less than an hour at some astonishing average. That's, that's right. This was a Futa, I think. Right. And, uh, and we wanted to do it in less than an hour, uh, which was cause quite difficult, uh, which, we, which I, th I think we managed to do, actually. I'd, I was lucky enough last year to come out to um, the Futa Pass and have a ride in an S a 300 SLR and just turning you were there with sort of doing onboard shots and things. And uh, what surprised me was just how relentless that pass is. It's corner after corner yeah. after corner after yeah. corner. And you always described the 300 SLR as a very sophisticated, you know, smooth car. But it's, and how lovely it was to drive over a long distance. But when I got into it, <laughs> it wasn't sophisticated and smooth at all compared to modern machinery. I think people don't appreciate just how sort of raw these cars were and the noise and the you know I obviously couldn't get down behind the windscreen being yeah but I mean but when, when you're racing there's you obviously you're dry, you you use the steering wheel just to present the car to the corner then, then you use the throttle to to you know to virtually to steer it and and the, the 300 SLR was a staggering car I mean really well I mean we we're doing speeds up to 180 I mean the one which I think was probably the most interesting one uh, the last Cremona to Brescia is 135 k's, and on that we aver uh, averaged uh, uh, 165 miles an hour, I think it was. There's a lovely bit of period film, isn't there, of you overtaking the plane? Yes, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but planes weren't that fast. Though. Yeah, <laughs> the planes that you can see this silver bullet going down this straight road, and it's just going right into the distance. Yeah. 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 Amazing. You, you mentioned earlier, Stone, that it was it was one race that really scared you. Yeah. Um, why did you keep going back? Well, because it's the most exhilarating, exciting race anywhere in the world, um, and it, it it just to me. I mean, I'm a racing driver, 
and to to take part in an event like that one, I think is really is f just pushing it, pushing the limits about as far as you can. But you, see, you, you always yeah. did it with a co-driver, whereas your great chum Fanjo, he would never take a co-driver with him. No, but he? the reason he wouldn't take a driver is he had a crash uh, in Argentina and his co-driver was killed. And so he, he said, look, I'd, he would never take somebody else's, you know, never put them in that danger. Ah. Yeah, apparently. And Because obviously Fanjo finishing second in 55, I'd, in your opinion, that was, I mean, without a co-driver, that must have been an impressive feat. Oh, I think it's staggering. Um, really, I mean, the, it, it amazes me because Fangio certainly was faster in, in Formula One to, than myself, but I could usually beat him in sports cars, sports car racing. I don't know why. I asked him, I said, look, why aren't you faster in, in sports cars? And uh, in, in sports cars, yeah. And he said, because he likes to see the front wheels. I mean, which, which is seemed, seemed to me an amazing thing to say, but he, he liked to be able to see his front wheels here. Amid the elation of winning in 1955 and Fangio's second, do you think to yourself, nobody's ever going to do that again? No, no, I, I, I mean, we was obviously on a real high, and that's why we drove on up, up to Stuttgart through the night after the race. We had some, you know, a party there in, in Brescia, and I uh, thought, well, as this is so, they'd probably like us to be able to do a PR deal with, with the, the, the factory. So we, we just went on to get up there. Right. Good party, nice girls. I don't remember a thing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, just uh, briefly, uh, again on the 55 Mini Mini, how hard was it? Because obviously, you know, you're, you're a racer, and you. Um, how hard was it to ignore the Ferraris? going off into the distance to, to start with because it was Castellotti who was spinning yeah, well, his rear well, wheel. Castellotti was leaving black lines so that as soon as I saw those black lines the way he was driving, it, was, it would have been impossible for, for that car. It was, I think it was 4.4 litre a new, new fry and it would be impossible. In no way would he, would he you know, complete the event. So I felt quite, you know, quite happy about quite that. Quite relaxed about it. Yeah, exactly. The, I think I'm right in hearing that your, you never really loved Le Mans because it was more a test of endurance yeah, than yeah. it was a speed. Was the Mille Miglia not slightly like that? Because I know it wasn't 24 hours, but you're, you know, it was 10 hours, 7 minutes. Um, there must have been an endurance aspect that came into it. Yeah, well, you see, the, the other good news about it is, is I was the only person driving it. You know, at Le Mans you have to share it, and you know darn well you give it to the, your co-driver, and, and he comes back and he said, look, the brakes aren't as good as they were, pulling to the right and all these excuses. In, in the melee there's no excuses. That's good. The, um, I was uh, thinking, the other, thinking the other day of what it must have been like to go from Mercedes in 55 to Maserati, when, and then you had two years a with... Big shock. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> um, describe the sort of the shock and the differences there. Well, I mean... Um, Going to the the Italians at Maserati, beautiful handling, beautiful handling car. I mean, handled better than any other Formula One car, but uh, but it was was still hadn't the reliability. I mean, I always felt that if I said to them, "Can we try, you know, special wheels with eight sides or something?" They, they'd look in the big book and say, "We tried that in 1915. It didn't <laughs> work. So forget it." You know, they had so much knowledge and understanding, and and Neuber, of course, who was our team manager. Uh, was a fantastic character. I mean, he really were. I mean, just to, to give you an example, a guy goes into a restaurant. You see, well, they can cut it out. Huh? A guy goes. <laughs> a guy goes into this restaurant. You see, and, and he, he's there and he says, 
McCoy. He says, look at that. And he bangs his hand. He says, look at that. He says, guy said, excuse me, that's my wife. He says, pardon me, pardon me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just going to dip into the, the reader's questions again. Um, there's one here from Diego. Um, he wants to know the most thrilling corners you've ever experienced. And this could be Grand Prix, sports cars, Mini Emilia, anything. Well, the thrilling from you get thrilling because it frightens you, which can happen, and you get thrilling because it excites you. And I presume he means which is the most exciting. Um, obviously, because one I didn't know the Mealy Mealy circuit as well as one with a short one. Um, I mean, there were so many corners on the Mealy Mealy where you were. Were, were flat out, but they were blind. Yeah. They must have been quite something with Jenks telling yeah, you. Well, Jen yeah, but Jen Jenks, we'd been around and he'd, uh, he'd, uh, we'd, you know, we'd decide exactly what, 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 we, what we were going to do and how we were going to Where did you ding the nose? That must have been a frightening, if only because you were frightened you might have been well, out of the race. That was because I thought I knew, I thought we came to Pescara, I think it was, and we came there and, and I thought I knew, knew the road, and of course it wasn't the piece I thought it was. <laughs> So I had, to get, I had to drive off the curb and bent it, yeah. Um, I'd, I've heard the, the sort of bits of the story before, but wasn't there a pill that Fangio gave you before yeah. the yes, mini-media? Mini did we ever work out what that was? I never found out. It was what probably it was. blue. <laughs> 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 well, it clearly worked for Fangio, didn't it? He had a lot of pretty girlfriends. Yes, he did. Uh, that's true. That's true. Um, so, it's, But it was just something to keep you awake and, and keep you going. Yeah, exactly. And... and uh, he gave me this this thing and and Jinx, and I must say it worked perfectly. I mean, because it was really we, I don't know when we went to fi to bed first. <laughs> I mean, it was well after the race, hours hours up up the circuit. Yeah. Well, of course, Jinx went back to his hotel, sat up, and wrote, wrote the entire report, and then put it in the Italian post box. Yeah, exactly. Back to London, amazing. Yeah, and with no notes at all, you realise that he had no notes whatsoever because he had nothing to write with. Yeah, he was, read he was reading the instructions to me. So it's quite quite incredible. Amazing. So I'm uh, so I'm gonna I must keep asking these readers questions because they've they've taken the trouble to to send them in. Um, this one's a bit a bit different. He's uh, this is from Tom Neal, who is talking about the difference between Grand Prix drivers today and Grand Prix drivers in the fifties and sixties. Yeah. And he's wondering which of today's F1 drivers would have been most suited to the driving style and personality of the the drivers from your era. I would say Vettel probably. I think Vettel, Vettel, I think today is one of the fastest. Uh, well, as, as is Lewis, um, Alonso and what have you. I think, I'm sure that if the, if the drivers of today raced at the time I did, I'm sure they'd have been you know, just as outstanding, quite frankly. I mean, because, because you, ha you know, learning, the cars are completely different, obviously. I've never, I haven't driven a, a really modern car at all. But uh, they must be quite exciting and interesting to drive. The thing is, we've got all these buttons and stuff. Well, originally, of course, we didn't have those buttons, so you had meant the driver had to do it. But now they, you know, otherwise they've got 13, 15 buttons or something, aren't they? They can, they can press. So I, I know we're really talking about Monica and Millimilia, but um, looking at this trophy cabinet, we've got the, uh, the trophy you won for the British Grand Prix 1955, you've got the British Grand Prix trophy, you've got the Tourist trophy, all of which have got your name on numerous times. Uh, in terms of, you, know, you're, you were busy as a racing driver, I just looked up a little stat, I think it was between 52 and 53, you did somewhere around 50 races uh, of all sorts, in almost everything. Um, it's pretty busy, given there was an off-season, then even those days you'd go and do stuff down in the, the Southern Hemisphere. Did it 
was it a case you just drove anything to get the experience and because you were a yes. professional racing but driver? Because I, was, I was a professional racing driver and I would just pick out whichever car that seemed the best best bet. You know, I mean, for instance, I was with a, with a Maserati, I couldn't I couldn't drive a Ferrari, you know, because I would Mazza. But uh, and then of course with with Rob Walker's cars, he he would buy a, a Cooper or, or a Lotus. How do you think Lewis's social life with Coke? We're doing fifty races a year. He's pretty fit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ac- actually, it's amazing. As a driver, you have to be very, really, very fit. I must admit. Really. But if you're racing every week, it's like you know, like football. If you play it every week, it isn't that much to you. Yeah. When you were famous for for never doing sort of fitness per se, you, your fitness was driving a car, yes, wasn't it? Yeah, literally. Yeah, I, I never, I never did it. They do a lot more work on the, on their themselves now. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty awful life to be a driver now. <laughs> <laughs> it's I different. I think it has its compensations at times. Have the best. We had the best times. I mean, well, something I was I was actually wondering on, on my way in here was: Would you have enjoyed the modern hybrid era as a racing driver? If you know, if you were in not your as much, now? not as much as I did when I was in. I, I wouldn't switch my era for any. You know, even pre-war. And I mean, yes, I would like to have tried the cars and see what they were like. Of course, because that's that's you know, because it's a competitor or one I was going to drive, but uh, but not otherwise. I can imagine it when you look at modern Formula One today. There's every driver has sort of two PR people next to them with dictaphones. Yeah, they they would have had quite a tough job with you, Sterling, trying to keep you from saying things they didn't want you to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's yes, that's true. Actually, you, you certainly yes. wouldn't have driven for Ron Dennis, would you? No, I don't think I would. No, <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't be high on my list. Uh. Yeah. Um, now, just uh, d- we, d- we mustn't go on for too long, but we um, have a question here from Paul, um, and there's also a question from Alan, um, who's doing the recording, that's sort of linked. Paul is wondering whether you still miss competitive driving nowadays. No, not really, because I know I wouldn't be competent. I mean, frankly, I, I enjoy doing something if I'm doing it well. Uh, it's much more fun to win than to lose. And I think I think if I did if I'd I mean I retired when I was 83, and which I thought was a fairly good innings, um, but uh, I no I, I no certainly I don't miss it that much. I mean I would have said you're the motorsports greatest ambassador uh, because you you're constantly out there, occasionally chastising the modern drivers for uh, their bad PR and telling them to get on the race. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so no, I'm a it's been a wonderful life, though. Yeah. So, t- just briefly before we before we wrap it up, what are your what are your plans this summer? You're off to Monaco for the historic. Your yes, um, going your off watch. to Monaco now, um, and then we, we as I watch British Grand Prix may go up there for practice, but certainly watch watch the race at home on television because it's such a good, you know, Martin tells you things that are going on you you might not know and all that sort of thing. I mean, I'm interested in in following. I, I don't really know any of the drivers. Um, other than, you know, hello. They know who you are, though. No. It's, yeah, it's much better yeah, like yeah. that. That's the way it should be. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So just one or two things to do later this the, year. The, well, there are, thank God, for ex-racing drivers, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, so Sterling, I'm, uh, we are so privileged to have you in to the Royal Automobile Club um, to come and talk to us for so long. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing our memories of, of Monaco and the Milli Milia and so many other things. Thank you to the readers for... Uh, sending in questions. Ben, thank you very much for joining us. Alan, for doing the sound. We will be back next month with another talk show, and we'll see you all then. Goodbye for now. Thank you.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.